Hi everybody, it's Derek, and this is And That's The Way It Was, for July 24th, 2018. So I said last week we kind of had a mix-up last week, but I had lined up an interview for you uh, with a writer named Branko Marchetich. Uh Branko has been writing, I think, some very interesting pieces about some very anti-conventional wisdom pieces about uh, Donald Trump's travels around the world in his uh, zany antics. Uh, he's got one in Jacobin, and I'll link to all three of these, uh, but he's got one in Jacobin uh, called The Mysteriously Vanished NATO Critique uh, from, from last week, and he's got another one uh, at In These Times called The NATO Summit wasn't a victory for Trump, it was a victory for militarism. Uh, we're going to talk mostly today about NATO, um, and I'm going to get him to make the lefty case for why NATO no longer needs to exist. I'm hoping. I, I think he'll he'll do it. Because um, <laughs> I think it's an important case, and it's getting drowned out in a lot of the noise about, and the sort of reflexive Trump effect need to come to NATO's defense uh, every time he says something insulting to Angela Merkel or, or, or you know, anything like that. Uh, Branko also wrote a piece uh, after the Helsinki summit with Vladimir Putin, uh, also for In These Times, called What the Liberal Establishment Gets Wrong About the Trump-Putin Summit. Uh, if we have time toward the end of the interview, I will ask him uh, to talk about that as well. But we're going to spend most of the, at least the first part of the interview will be on NATO, and uh, we'll see what, what time we have left to talk about Putin. Uh, with that said, uh, okay, let's go to the interview. Okay, so I'm here with Branko Marchetich, and we're going to talk NATO, and we're going to talk about why maybe it's not so great to just reflexively defend NATO every time Donald Trump says something nasty about it. Uh, Branko, thanks for being on. Uh, I really appreciate it. No, thanks for having me. Uh, so I'm going to ask you, because... The crisis over the NATO summit seems like it was about 18 crises ago. Uh, so I'm going to ask you first to recap for people uh, what happened when Trump, a couple of weeks ago, visited NATO for the, the big NATO summit in Brussels. Uh, and first, give us kind of the short version of the the conventional story about what a catastrophe this was. And then talk about, as you write in your uh, piece for In These Times, what actually was the outcome? Because I think they're two uh, very different narratives. Right, yeah. I mean, as usual, the uh, conventional narrative focused on Trump's rhetoric, um, which it tends to do, especially in, when it comes to foreign policy, and especially when it comes to anything to do with um, Russia and Putin. So the uh, conventional narrative was, you know, Trump went into the NATO summit uh, expressing skepticism about NATO's usefulness and, um, and, and also uh, frustration at the fact that the U.S. was uh, spending a lot of money um, for NATO while... The uh, the other NATO countries were, uh, you know, by his perception, not sort of pulling their weight. Um, now, whether this was a, a genuine uh, feeling by Trump or whether this was a negotiating tactic to sort of get them to uh, pony up more money um, is up for debate. With Trump, you never really know what is actually going on in his head. Um, but, you know, this was basically the, the, the kind of thing going into it. Um, and then when the, the summit actually happened... Uh, it was, uh, you know, by, by now kind of infamously chaotic uh, with Trump um, in a closed door session saying something along the lines of, you know, that, that uh, if NATO members didn't start paying more, that uh, Trump would uh, or that the U.S. would go it alone. Um, you know, it's sort of a veiled threat to, to leave NATO. Um, the other NATO states said that supposedly uh, they didn't take it that way, that that that's not what he meant, that it was um, a little more ambiguous. But either way, um, it, was, it was obviously kind of threatening language that undermined that kind of um, the basis of, of, or the theoretical basis of NATO, which is the, the idea of mutual defense. Um, because it seemed, you know, from, from Trump's rhetoric that um, the U.S. would be a little more hesitant to back uh, its, its NATO members if the worst should happen and one of them is attacked. Um, and so this and then, then uh, led to... Had, well, we had the follow-up 
his interview with Tucker Carlson on Fox News a few days after, right, where he, they both bemoaned the fact that the United States might be asked to defend Montenegro someday, and we implied that Montenegro might somehow cause World War III, even though... Uh, <laughs> Trump seems to be doing that with yes, Iran today, actually, uh, much more effectively. Right. That. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That's right. Um, and of course, also looming, uh, sort of over this whole thing, was Trump's uh, meeting with Putin in Helsinki uh, that following Monday, which, um, you know, uh, even even before the NATO stuff, when that had been announced, it had uh, sent a lot of the um, Western pundits into this apoplectic fit about. You know, um, people actually forget this now after all the treason stuff, but, you know, uh, people were saying that this was potentially treasonous and terrible way before anything happened with NATO and way before anything happened at that press conference. Um, so I think that was also a big part of the NATO stuff. And, and you had a lot of um, headlines after the NATO summit, um, you know, saying that Trump has undermined NATO. There was a piece um, in the Washington Monthly um, that said, can we, uh, the, the headline was something along the lines of, can we finally admit that Trump has been compromised by Putin? Um, and, and various uh, headlines along the same lines. So basically, you know, the, the Trump's seeming uh, rhetorical undermining of NATO was the final proof that we needed that, you know, if we, if we weren't convinced until now, now we know Trump is definitely working for Putin and his verbal dressing down of the NATO uh, countries and um, seeming threat to leave NATO was a um, what was in Putin's interest, and it was sort of this uh, part of some, I guess, grand scheme. Um, so that's the narrative. Um, the actual outcome of the NATO summit was uh, a whole bunch of countries actually pledging to spend a whole lot more on defense uh, as a result, partly um, of Trump's uh, threats and rhetoric. Um, th this is a little bit murky because, um, you know, tr Trump, the, what immediately happened was Trump came out and he said, I've secured these uh, large spending increases by other countries. I've succeeded. Good deal. And then he left, you know, and then uh, a bunch of other European uh, 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 leaders came out and said, no, this is not true. You know, Macron said, uh, the, fr the French president said, um, no, we didn't agree to anything. We, all we did was we re reiterated what we had said um, back in 2014 um, under Obama, that we were going to try and increase to 2% of GDP. Um, and, and I think you had a few other European uh, leaders saying the same thing. Um, and so people immediately said, you know, uh, Trump is wrong. Trump didn't achieve anything, yada, yada, yada. Um, uh, however, um, then you also have, uh, you know, there was a piece in, in foreign policy, which is sort of, you know, the establishment uh, foreign policy journal um, uh, in, in the sort of DC media, um, basically making the, the the argument that actually the, the NATO summit was pretty successful despite the sort of bluster by Trump, that they had secured a whole bunch of gains. You know, um, the UK agreed to send uh, more troops to Afghanistan. Um, uh, Trudeau, the Canadian Prime Minister, had agreed to uh, train forces in Iraq. Uh, Europe and the NATO states, according to the NATO Secretary, Secretary General, had agreed to spend an extra $266 billion um, going into t uh, 2024. Um, and, and the Secretary General um, actually you know, said this was a direct result of, of what Trump had said. Um, of course, you know, it's it's always hard to uh oh actually I, sh I should also add canada had agreed to um increase its defense spending by something like something outrageous like 70 percent or something um a month before the summit um and germany had also very shortly before uh the 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 summit had had passed a uh, budget that that made a pretty big increase to defense um, after they had passed a budget earlier that that didn't do that at all. Um, both of, you know both countries that have been harangued by Trump over uh, not spending enough on the fence. Um, now you know of course there's going to be domestic political um, elements that that of course played a large if not larger role than Trump. But you know it's it's hard to think that Trump's um, you know badgering of these countries didn't play some kind of role. Um, and of course, it's very murky. As you uh, said, you know, I mean, the, uh, the Trump, 
I mean, the, Trump had we have as much reason to believe Trump basically when he brags that he got all these nations to recommit to spending more money uh, as we do to believe all the leaders of the other nations in NATO when they say, oh, no, he didn't. He didn't intimidate me. I'm fine. I, I, I didn't agree to anything. You know, there's there's no reason to yeah, believe exactly. either of them, basically. Yeah, it's it's this bizarre thing that, you know, because Trump is such a liar, um, you know, uh, what ends up happening is people then just unquestionably believe everything his opponents say. I mean, these people are politicians as well. They have self-interest in lying, and also they're well-versed in lying. They are the guys, especially, you know, when it comes to, to you know, public kind of diplomacy, they're not going to necessarily tell the truth. Um, so there's no reason why we should necessarily, as, as you say, you know, uh, listen to their word over Trump's. Um, but you know, I mean, the sum total of this whole thing is that it's it's yet another in a series of escalations um, that's implicitly aimed at Russia. Um, I mean, that, this is what this whole thing is about. It's it's um, uh, European countries and the U.S. are increasingly alarmed by by Russia, even though Russia's uh, defense budget is um, you know laughably puny compared to not just the U.S. But if you look at the entirety of of the NATO countries' defense budgets, it's you know Russia is nothing. Um, and yet, this is what it's really about. It's about being. It's about aiming these um, these defense increases as a an implicit kind of threat at Russia. You know, uh, stop meddling in our countries allegedly, um, or you know, the, don't don't push us because we uh, we will strike back. That that's the message. So, I think you've laid out. I mean, the, the, there's a, a definite sort of. Uh, disconnect between the way that the summit was portrayed and what actually took place. The fact that um, what you actually got out of this was uh, a bunch of agreements for NATO to do more military activity all over the world. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I, so I want to transition into a discussion about why NATO still exists, what's the justification for it, and what's the argument against it from the left. Um, I, I feel like, uh, I think Chris Hayes from MSNBC had a, a good tweet actually after the 2% uh, of GDP thing blew up and became a big thing. He said, uh, I think that's great. We should set a good example for everybody else. The United States should start spending 2% of its GDP on defense, which would be about 1.5% less than we spend now. Um, which I, I you know, I feel like. If you frame the argument that way, I can understand uh, and agree with, in a sense, the idea that uh, other nations in NATO should be spending at this 2% level. I wouldn't say we should go beyond that, but if it means that the United States could spend at 2% of its GDP, then sure, we could rebalance everything and it would be great. Uh, it would be an overall reduction in defense spending for the alliance. Uh, but, of course, that's not going to happen. And Trump even talked about getting everybody to 4% of GDP someday, which the United States, with its absolutely insane militarism, uh, doesn't even get to. Uh, so, you know, this is just a, a, a another way to sort of beef up this alliance that... Um, well, I think, I mean, I, you know, I want you to make the the argument here about why it shouldn't exist on some level it's sort of if you think about it for a couple of minutes it's it's apparent why it shouldn't exist anymore for anybody who's like my age nato is a cold war institution it was built to defend mm. europe and the the western world order from the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact and the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact don't exist anymore so what is nato still doing uh, now they've transitioned. They've sort of refashioned themselves as a uh, a counterterrorism alliance uh, in the wake of nine eleven, but that's a it's it strikes me as a, a shifting justification to maintain this bureaucracy that basically or this institution that now mostly exists to perpetuate its own existence. Uh, but I don't want to get you know get in a direction here. I want you to. Uh, talk about why NATO, why does NATO still exist, and what's the argument against it continuing to exist? Well, um, I th yeah, I, I think you hit the nail on the head um, 
in, in a lot of what you said. I mean, I think there's kind of three points to bring up here. Um, one is that, as you say, it, it is a Cold War relic. It, it you know, it was created as an explicit, um, explicitly as a um, kind of military defense against the Soviet Union. And and at the time, by the way, there was debate about whether that was a good idea. I mean, um, people forget this now, but there was actually debate within the uh, U.S. government about what the right approach to the Soviet Union was. And there were people who said, you know, we're, we're misreading Soviet motives wrong. Um, they're not expansionist. Um, they're actually, they've been crippled after the war. They're, they don't necessarily want to go take over the world. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, being more militaristic could end up being a provocation. So there was debate even during the, you know, when NATO was set up. Um, Post-Cold War, uh, of course, you know, suddenly the justification for it to uh, exist disappeared. And, and you even have people openly saying during the 90s and early 2000s, I mean, you know, like, should NATO exist? What is the point of it anymore? Um, when Putin took power, he suggested it be turned into a political forum. And, um, and yet, for example, though, um, while people were asking that question... NATO was expanding. It was making plans to expand into Eastern Europe. Uh, you know, talk maybe talk about how that played out. While while you have these debates yeah, exactly. over these existential debates, like should this thing exist, it just keeps kind of growing. You know, blob like over Europe. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I, you know, when I wrote one of the pieces, I think it was a Jacobin piece, um, someone on, on Twitter sort of did a, criticized me. They said, you didn't mention that NATO countries, uh, the Eastern European countries that NATO expanded into, that they actually wanted um, NATO expansion, um, which is true. There is, especially now, there is a large degree of support for NATO membership among these places. However, it's also important to note that um, the, the NATO expansion uh, eastward was something that was planned uh, well before, um, you know, there was this kind of pro-NATO sentiment in these countries. And in fact, it was actually against um, the prevailing sentiment at the time, which was once the Soviet Union fell apart, um, a lot of these countries were saying, you know, now there's no point for NATO to exist anymore. So, for example, you know, the National Security Archive, um, they released a bunch of documents uh, either this year or last year. And you have things like, um, for instance, a 1990 uh, memo um, basically saying that, uh, so 1990, very early, you know, uh, after the Cold War was finished, um, saying that the Secretary of Defense wants to, quote, leave the door ajar um, to allow NATO membership in the future, but not to promote it at the time because there was... Uh, no support for it at the time among those Eastern European countries. You also have um, Paul Nietzsche, who's uh, known as you know, an architect of the Cold War, uh, a Cold War hawk for much of um, much of the Cold War. And um, in I think also 1990, he sends a memo to George H. Uh, w. Bush, uh, saying that he had been to this forum in Berlin. Um, over uh, the future of, of um, well, NATO and the future of Europe and the future of Germany and everything. Um, and there's a, a lot of representatives from Eastern Europe there as well as Western Europe. Um, and they're all saying they want eventually the dissolution of NATO. Once the Warsaw Pact um, dissolves, they want NATO to be dissolved as well. And Paul Nietzsche talks about how over the course of this forum, uh, he and I guess presumably other U.S. representatives have gotten these people to change their minds and actually, um, you know, want to keep NATO and that, you know, to say that NATO and the Warsaw Pact are in no way equivalent. So, first of all, it's important to note that this was, this NATO expansion was planned from the beginning. Um, then you have Clinton through the 90s, basically, while Russia is weakened um, and, and can't really do that much, uh, there are plans in the mid to late 90s to start expanding NATO eastward, um, bring in uh, Poland, uh, Czechoslovakia, and, and other countries. Um, once and, and at the time, again, there's a debate. Uh, George Kennan, who, had, who was another uh, Cold War architect and who had argued against NATO's existence in the first place, you know, says this would be a, a horrible mistake, um, but uh, the, the U.S. does it anyway. They expand eastward. Uh, it pisses Russia off a whole lot. A lot of uh, right-wing Russian politicians, you know, somebody calls it the, the, a Treaty of Versailles for Russia. Um, and then also it happens, that expansion happens a week after the, uh, after the NATO bombing of, of uh, Yugoslavia, or specifically Belgrade, um, you know, a Russian ally. So, that, you know, these two things happening at once uh, or, or very close together end up um, 
basically uh, riling up kind of nationalist sentiment in Russia and, and alarming them because for Russians and for Russian officials, they thought, you know, <laughs> the Cold War is over, it's now peace. Um, and yet this military alliance that was, uh, you know, was set up to, to combat their country is still surviving and not only surviving, but it's actually expanding further, getting bigger and getting closer to their borders um, to the point where now, um, I mean, since the end of the Cold War, NATO has added 14, I believe, um, countries, all from Eastern Europe. Um, two of the countries are on Russia's border. Uh, the, uh, the eventual plan, of course, is to uh, have Ukraine join NATO as well, which would be the, you know, I mean, that's the ultimate kind of provocation. Um, and so, I mean, the reason for its existence is really, um, it's, a, it's a continued sort of uh, maintaining of influence, uh, imperialist influence, you might say. You know, the, the U.S. wants to, U.S. policymakers want to continue having the upper hand um, in in uh, Eastern Europe and and against Russia, and um, and I know that you know that might sound conspiratorial for some, but I mean if you actually look at the the uh, many many documents and and uh, everything that's been written about this uh, for, for for many years, it's pretty self evident and 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 not even controversial, um, and you know it's and it's and and it's also NATO has I think most importantly. Um, it, it was created to stop Russian aggression and it has actually exacerbated it. It's actually revived Russian aggression because, every, you know, people like Robert Gates, uh, and even Michael McFaul, you know, the, Obama's, uh, ambassador to Russia, who's, uh, you know, pretty anti-Putin and pretty, like, he's a pretty strong hawk, I think. Um, they all admit that, yes, the expansion of NATO, um, along with a whole heap of other things that the U.S. did, you know, the Bush's um, Iraq war, his getting out of the, um, the missile treaty and everything. I mean, all these things um, played a role in oh, basically... And, I mean, we, uh, we exported shock capitalism over there to, to let them be yeah. a laboratory, basically. Yeah, there was that, that whole thing, that little episode. There was, uh, you know, uh, the U.S. blatantly helping Yeltsin win the election. Um, you know, I mean, all of these things played a role in basically not only um, reviving the strength of Russian nationalism um, politically, but also in provoking someone like Putin, who's, you know, a, he's a paranoid uh, anti-American leader, very suspicious of U.S. interests, and, and you know, probably has a, has a right to be. Um, but it's it's helped, you know, this kind of Russian expansion uh, that, that people have been talking about for the last... Uh, however many number of years, it's it's a direct response to what the U.S. has been doing because the U.S. has also been expanding it in some way, um, you know, through NATO. Um, so uh, yeah, I mean, uh, at the moment we're sort of in the, on this track of uh, you know because of this organization, because of this military alliance, we're, we're on track to sort of uh, to have another conflict, um, which does not get reported as much in the news. It sort of all tends to be about Russiagate and, you know, whether Putin has a tape of Trump watching prostitutes <laughs> be in a bed or something. Um, you know, that's, that, that's what the focus is on. But, you know, um, you look at the background, there's, there's something far more scary and sinister right. going on. Do we know what the arguments were that, that uh, people were making in 1990 when you say, you know, they were talking to other NATO members and, and convincing them to, to that the alliance could needed to continue on. Were they just sort of out and out imperialists? We need to maintain control and expand to Eastern Europe and expand our hegemony. Um, I, I get the sense from the, the sort of totality of things that happened uh, in the 90s in the U.S.-Russia relationship that there was a need, an unspoken need on some level, to punish Russia as the defeated uh, adversary of the Cold War. Uh, but I don't know if that plays out, if anybody you know, says anything that, that hints at that or not. Um, I'm not sure either. I wouldn't be surprised. Um, I mean, from what I've read, a lot of it was, you know, I mean... Clinton just kind of, uh, when he expanded NATO, he just, he, he did it over Yeltsin's objections. You know, Yeltsin warned him that this would be a bad thing, uh, for Russia, that people would get very angry and 
Clinton sort of listened and said, you know, well, you know, too too bad you can't really do anything, and he made him, um, you know, go along with it. Um, I mean, I, I think, for example, uh, that Paul Nietzsche memo, he mentions that um, sort of the, the thinking that he had gotten uh, these European representatives to to adopt was that um, quote. Um, there was no valid analogy between the Warsaw Pact and NATO. One was a true alliance, the other consisted of arrangements formally imposed upon countries now no longer under Soviet dominance. So I guess that might give you some uh, indication of the kind of arguments they were making. Um, I imagine a lot of the arguments would have been probably based on the kind of um, mutual security of uh, these Eastern European countries. You know, they probably would have... Uh, and, uh, this is you know, this is definitely speculation on my part, but they probably would have said something along the lines of, you know, uh, you think about, you know, when, to Poland, for example, you know, think about when Russia invaded and, and basically <laughs> carved you up. Uh, that could easily happen again. Um, if you join NATO, not so much. Um, and, and then, you know, it's obviously the, the aggressive actions by Putin um, since he's taken to power uh, have... Uh, made those arguments only easier because then the, what, what's actually a reactive policy seems to be just a policy of naked uh, conquest. And then it makes it easier, I think, for officials to say, well, you see, we told you. Uh, we told you that the Russians wanted to expand and wanted to reimpose and recreate the Soviet Union. That's what they're trying to do. So you have to join NATO, and, and, and th this alliance is more important than ever. Um, and actually, funnily enough, this is what George Kern had warned. He had he had warned in the 90s upon the expansion of NATO. He said, um, you know, this is going to create a bad reaction in Russia, and um, they're going to react aggressively at some point. And then all the people pushing for NATO expansion will eventually say, well, you see, we told you this is what the Russians are like. This is just <laughs> right. how they are. Um, <laughs> And and we're seeing yeah. that, we're seeing that literally right now. Uh, how much uh, did, did I mean? To what extent, I guess, does nine eleven come into this? Because NATO, it seems like um, I don't want to say took advantage. That sounds bad, but it definitely seized on the war on terror as a new sort of rationale for existence in a new organizing principle and we know of course uh the only time article 5 has ever been invoked the, the mutual defense clause was after 9-11 to defend the united states which is uh, absurd on some level because what what was nato going to do to help defend the united states from uh afghanistan you know a bunch of guys in a cave in afghanistan uh but it, it was invoked after you know after that attack and it's it seems like NATO kind of got some mojo out of that in a sense that that it it found a a new reason for being. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. It's it's funny that you know you say you don't want to say that they quite took advantage of it, but um, I mean, if you look at the NATO NATO's um kind of they they have a web page on this um and uh they seem pretty clear that they did take advantage <laughs> of it. You know, they literally. <laughs> They use the words um, uh, "NATO turned tragedy into opportunity," um, <laughs> but because it was completely irrelevant. I mean, I'm not oh, even I'm God, not even serious. joking. I mean, it's that's you can. Amazing. Yeah, and so do they, yeah, do, they do the I mean, Chinese a, a, the Chinese word for opportunity and crisis. <laughs> okay. No, but I'm you know I'm sure that uh, if you look hard enough, somebody would probably you know pop up somewhere. I mean, yeah, it's there was it was NATO was rudderless after the Cold War. Aside from the fact that it was, you know, this kind of, um, I guess, this kind of instrument of, of U.S. influence, um, and and it was involved in the NATO bombing, uh, of which the success is, you know, pretty debatable. Um, how 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 important that was actually to, you know, uh, ending the war. Uh, one of the things NATO bombing did was actually uh, kind of eliminate the pro democracy movement in. Um, Serbia and Belgrade specifically, um, also nearly went, uh, led to World War III, um, or, or at least something much more serious when uh, Wesley Clark, who uh, you might remember for, as, as being one of Hillary Clinton's big um, military boosters during the 2016 campaign, he had ordered a NATO contingent to take back uh, an airport in Kosovo from... Um, from uh, Russian forces who had, who had taken it sort of in alarm. And um, the only reason it didn't happen is because, um, of all people, right, James the Blunt, the pop singer, who, who, yeah, he, he was a NATO captain at the time, and he was like, uh, Jesus, I don't think <laughs> yeah. I want to do that. And 
And thankfully, you know, a British, a, a superior British general phoned in and he said, don't do this. This is a terrible idea. I'm, we're, we're not doing this order. Um, so, you know, that was, that was NATO's kind of first big thing that it did post-war, uh, um, I, I think. Maybe I'm missing something, but I think that was a sort of big, huge flagship uh, event, and its actual success was, was very arguable. And then after that, you know, the war on terror happened, and it, it was not clear what NATO's purpose was, really. Um, Bush didn't actually include NATO in the war on terror first. Um, you know, I think mostly because Bush was all about unilateral, uh, unilateral action and, um, didn't want to be constrained by outside forces. Uh, so for him, you know, the war on terror was a U.S. specific thing. You're with us or against us. We're doing this and, you know, screw you guys. If you want to go ahead, you can. And if you don't, too bad. Um, and then eventually NATO was included because NATO made a, uh, case as you, as you say, uh, it, it, it reinvented itself as this terrorist fighting force. Um, now it's success, on that front is also equally debatable. Um, I personally don't think that a military solution to terrorism is a viable one. I, I think the, that's sort of what people have been arguing for the past, what, 17 years? Um, you know, that, that actually the, the roots of terrorism are far more complex and that simply bombing terrorists out of existence doesn't do much other than create more I don't terrorists. know. They've been, they've been um, instrumental in winning the war in Afghanistan, so I don't, I don't know if I agree with that. <laughs> yeah, right. One more yeah, year, yeah. one more year, and they, they, it ought to be done. It's, yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, Afghanistan's a clear case. I mean, the other thing is NATO was, you know, it was NATO that bombed Libya and created. Uh, I mean, it it might be too much to say that Libya was uh, the second most foreign policy disaster after Iraq, um, but it's pretty damn close because all the a lot of the things that are uh, roiling the kind of western um I, I guess establishment at the moment the migrant crisis um terrorism in africa that kind of thing that all comes from from libya if if gaddafi had not been uh removed from power and 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 libya hadn't devolved into just complete anarchy as a result um you wouldn't get these things because libya is now the um it's it's the jumping off point for uh for for migrants um who are you know trying to escape Desperate and horrible situations. Um, it's well, also, but also winding uh, up in desperate and horrible situations. I mean, there's slave markets in, in parts of Libya now uh, because right. there's no central. Yeah, control. absolutely. Yeah, absolutely, and and also a lot of the guns that were used in Libya um, then, you know, uh, surprise, surprise, found their way into other parts of uh, the Middle East and North Africa. I mean. Um, uh, I feel like I remember reading that that this uh, they made a, they went to Syria as well, but I know for a fact that they um, th that the Mali crisis that um, uh, the uh, socialist French president uh, a few years back um, got a lot of credit for supposedly you know having a, a tough stance on that that crisis in Mali um, was a result of weapons from Libya finding their way over there. Um, so you know that's that's uh, the other. Uh, of NATO's successes that that don't have to do with provoking um, Russian aggression is that they you know have destroyed an entire country and um, and exacerbated um, already existing problems uh, in the Middle East and North Africa. So you know, pretty good track yeah. record so far. Well, I think I mean you 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 brought up uh, Kosovo. I mean, I think that's um, a more accurate history than the one I've portrayed of NATO trying to reinvent itself would be in the first case is this sort of as this justice league kind of thing that would go around the world solving <laughs> problems. Um, and that, I mean, that was in the wake of the failure to intervene in Rwanda, although France eventually did and wound up protecting the, the genocide heirs uh, from the Tutsi. Uh, but you know, the, everybody makes a few mistakes now and then, I guess. Um, but yeah, I, I, you, it's, it was first is this sort of like, humanitarian hit squad that's going to go around and stop genocides and then you know that that didn't really pan out so then it was like after 9-11 okay we're going to be the anti-terrorist force and that hasn't really panned out but it's still got enough uh kind of uh juice behind it that that they can continue to to use that as the the, the rallying cry i guess or the the justification for continuing 
Right. Yeah, I mean, um, I think NATO is kind of a testament to how hard it is to dismantle these um, Cold War institutions once um, once the Cold War is done. Because, you know, a lot of these, uh, there's a whole heap of other institutions like the CIA, for example, um, that are also the products of, of the Cold War. And they still, still use the exact kind of thinking of the Cold War, but um, to situations that don't necessarily merit it. Um, and people forget, but there was, in the, in the 90s, there was actually a push to dismantle the cia because you know it was a it was also seen as a cold war relic and also you know um it had helped fuel um the cold war because it had through the 70s and 80s um done wildly inflated uh, uh intel reports and estimates of um soviet uh power that was completely mistaken and um and helped to drive sort of uh, your know, u.s uh counter-aggression um so yeah, I mean, it, it's all these things are just good examples of how once they outlive their useful, usefulness, instead of, um, of disappearing or, or being uh, repurposed for some other kind of activity, for example, your NATO could have been or, and still could be just turned into a full-time um, either you know peacekeeping or, or just sort of civil defense force, because that's what NATO does that stuff as well. It, it, it well supposedly you know rescues migrants and um, you know does uh, goes after sex traffickers and human traffickers of, of all kinds and that kind of thing, you know. So you could make the case that NATO could be repurposed for that, but instead because it's this, it's it's an institution that was created um, explicitly for one purpose, which was uh, not just war, but also specifically to uh, counter Russian aggression and to 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 essentially wage war on Russia, um, and you know it it's still basically has that function um so you know it's 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 very hard it's, to get rid of these things once come they back are home, implemented basically to the to its old mission right yeah yeah exactly yeah it, it, it created the very conditions needed to make it justify <laughs> right, to itself to keep itself. existing yeah which is you know that's the war on terror as well sure right yeah. the war on terror is all about um, yeah and i don't yeah, i mean i don't so. think it's even limited to uh, cold war specifically cold war institutions i think it's just bureaucracies i mean if you look at what's happening yeah. to uh the gulf cooperation council for example like that that organization is done it is finished kaput uh it's absolutely obsolete because of the the tensions between the saudis and the Qataris. but i guarantee you uh you know 20 years from now there will still be people working in something called the gulf cooperation council regardless of whether it serves any purpose they'll just push papers around and uh you know go to an office every day uh but it, it, it i i feel very confident that it's not going to just dissolve it will continue to find some excuse to to live on even though it it's completely you know been overwhelmed by events it has no purpose anymore Right, yeah. I mean, uh, people's jobs and incomes um, rely on it, right? So um, it's it's hard to sort of. That's another aspect of it. It's like you know, nobody wants to lose a very cushy job um, that depends on a particular set of circumstances um, existing in, in perpetuity. So, I guess let's let's get into the the summit then, because this was kind of the capper. I mean, it's it's a. A different story in a sense, but it's it's they're all part of the same kind of Russia paranoia. Um, mm. uh, and I'm going to ask, um, actually, I'm going to come back to NATO in a minute, but I want to ask you uh, to talk about your piece, the, the, the one you wrote about the Trump-Putin summit. Uh, again, to do sort of a side-by-side -side comparison of what people saw from at that summit and the hair on fire reaction that they had to it and what actually happened uh, because i don't think they match up very well yeah i mean uh the trump Putin summit um as i guess people are somewhat familiar now with um just prompted uh i would say hysterical Calls. I, I would use that word because uh, you know it was um, charges of treason, 
the claim that, you know, this is finally, if the NATO summit wasn't enough, finally we have ultimate proof that Trump really is a an agent of Putin because look how nice he was being to him and and look, uh, he he denied the, the Russian hacking, um, which is something that he's denied for, <laughs> yes, for years I mean, and you know and the only difference was he was doing it with putin standing there next to him I mean, he's done yeah. this over and over again because it's, he feels like it's an affront to his political genius yeah which you know you can understand i mean uh i i there's very few world leaders who'd probably want to say like yes the only reason i won is because um because a foreign power uh you know uh, middled in the election and helped me win although i don't think that's really the only reason or even the main reason he won but you know uh put that to the side for a second um but yeah exactly he's he basically said the same thing he's always said he also you know acted very differential to putin which um by the way is entirely consistent with everything all of trump's behavior up to now you know he did the same thing people forget he did the same thing with the chinese president um he's solicitous for some reason or you know people who are kind of authoritarian minded uh, leaders. Yeah, I, I think I think Absolutely. I, 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 I think it was more apparent in that press conference, and I can't decide if it's you know if that really reflects something different about his feelings about Putin, or if it was just because it was so on display for everybody uh, that you just yeah. saw it kind of play out so so vividly. Well, I mean, you know, let, let's uh, have no illusions here. Trump is um, a terrible negotiator <laughs> and probably an even worse diplomat. Um, you know, I mean, has he, he? Trump has no real respect for the sort of niceties of diplomatic language and you know the idea of you know if when you uh, when you meet with a foreign power, you meant to act a certain way. He sort of just acts like Trump. Um, he just you know, does the same kind of. Um, psychobabble that he always does this kind of rambling stream of consciousness that just you know whatever pops into his brain um he says um which you you saw in that summit with putin um but you know i mean again very similar stuff also with china um when after a a an entire campaign where he turned china into the global enemy and, and not just a global enemy but the enemy specifically of u.s interests and and bashed him just relentlessly um when he met with um the chinese president he actually uh it was a very similar thing with with putin even news outlets remarked on it at the time they said this is a one of the most strangely deferential performances by a u.s president in a foreign country you know trump uh just uh, lavished uh z with with praise and he um he even blamed the u.s for the poor state of uh, u.s and china relations and he did a similar thing with kim jong-un um so obviously you know all this is a bad look of course it's uh it's it's diplomatically i mean it's a, it's a huge pr win for these countries um but uh i would argue that it is a less significant thing um given uh, you know compared to uh, what's actually happening tangibly, you know, the again, the difference between rhetoric and actually what's happening, you know, which is that uh, Trump has actually been, um, or at least his, his administration has been incredibly aggressive towards Russia, far more than um, than Obama. Um, and, and you could even argue more than probably Bush and, um, and, and even Clinton. Um, I mean, you know, uh, from from the sanctions that they put on to the sending of uh, arms to ukraine um to the bombing of syria or rather of, of assad's um forces uh they even shot down a syrian jet plane um which uh prompted a, a quite a, a strong rebuke from from russia you know basically saying don't do that again um i mean uh, i it it to me, I don't understand if, if Putin really is controlling Trump, if he's really blackmailing him and, you know, holding the strings like a puppeteer, then why is the only thing Putin is asking Trump to do is just to sort of be embarrassingly differential <laughs> towards him at a, at a press conference? Why is he not like, hey, can you not do all this other aggressive stuff that right, you're doing? Right. Um, I mean, I, I think it's relative. And I, I would, I, to, to contradict you a little bit, I don't think anybody... Yeah. Uh, could be harder on Russia than Clinton was. We reduced their lifespan, for, like their population shrunk because of what we did to them in the nineties. But you know that was sort of at least technically unintentional. Uh, yeah, right. It was to do with uh, that was the product of the horrendous right, economic right. policy or the of the right. spread of free market economics to benefit <laughs> um, Western countries. Uh, yeah. 
I mean, I think some of this stuff is sort of. Um, he's been cosmetically hard on Putin, and and the the the. Mm. I, I I look at Syria like the the bombings in Syria, uh, you know they didn't have any long term impact on the course of the war. Uh, there was the one incident where I think three hundred Russian contractors were killed uh, because of a U.S. bombing, which was actually in reaction to an attack against the U.S. or against the uh, Kurdish position. Uh, so it wasn't like a planned strike against these guys. It was it was a response. Um, I mean, I, I think he has been tougher in that sense, um, but it's all relative. I mean, it's relative to the, in the sense that Bush and Obama really were not hard on Russia at all. I mean, they kind of struggled with uh, the relationship, but they didn't do anything punitive. Uh, and the circumstances now after the election are such that, uh, you know, I feel, I think some response was inevitable because of the, the, the narrative of the Russian hacking. And, and Trump has sort of been pulled along in that, in, in some of those things and sanctions, et cetera. Um, right. But yeah, I mean, I, I still, still I, you're, you're right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a, obje- on an objective, an objective look at the way Trump has handled Russia or the way Russia has been handled by the U.S. government during the year and a half of the Trump administration compared to mm. the way it was handled during the Obama administration, it has been uh, more roughly handled in these last you know this last year and a half than it was uh, previously. Right. Well, yeah, and I think uh, you know the most important point here is that it, it doesn't seem like the actions of someone who's being blackmailed by a foreign power. Um, at the very least, even if, you know, uh, the stuff, not all of it is, as you say, a direct um, hit on Russia. It's not aimed necessarily to be a direct hit. However, um, it, surely someone who is being blackmailed by a foreign power would would not end up doing some of this stuff. You know, I mean, for example, uh, uh, Trump's um, tariffs, for example, really hit Russia hard. And, and Russia's not only responded with counter-tariffs, but they've joined a bunch of countries to complain about it at the WTO. Um, because I think it's something that the steel and aluminium tariffs, you know, uh, hit Russia by something like a hundred billion dollars, or at least that's what the Russian officials say. Um, either way, you know, it's not good for them. And again, the Ukrainian, the sending of weapons to Ukraine, Obama resisted that for years, um, because he saw it as a major provocation. Um, and, and Trump, I don't think Trump ordered it. I think Trump doesn't really have much (laughs) interest in anything he's doing. Um, but Trump is allowing... Uh, just by his mere existence, by his sort of passive kind of handling of all these things, he lets um, anti-Russian uh, warhawks uh, and, and warhawks of all kinds to to basically dictate policy. Yeah, I mean, policy. there's a sort of um, like obvious lack of interest in any of the details of his job that that allows people <laughs> around him to to do kind of what they want without you know, including like Republicans in Congress who could literally send him anything and he would sign it. Um, but... yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think we should take the same approach to Trump's foreign policy as we do to his domestic policy. When Trump says things about draining the swamp and taking on corporations and bringing jobs back to America, people don't just swallow it and go, "Oh, he's a yeah, he's a pro, he's an anti-corporate uh, populist." Um, people say, "Oh, wow, his um, actual uh, the the stuff he's actually done in office completely contradicts what he's saying." Um, and I think that's we should do the same thing on his foreign policy. Don't just listen to his words, even though you know on the world stage, of course, words can have uh, have a real impact. But you know, take some stock of of what his administration has actually done. I think I think that's pretty key. Um, and and actually, also, uh, you know, if, if we have time, I don't want to push us uh, over time or anything. But I think it's also important to to be calling for negotiations between Trump and Putin because. A lot of the rhetoric around this summit has been, um, you know, basically Trump should never meet with Putin. Uh, the idea that Putin is coming to the White House is, is outrageous. Um, and again, this is long before any of the NATO stuff. People were saying, no way, right. he shouldn't meet. But, you know, if you if you read outside of Western uh, press, people sort of scratch their heads around why why Trump and, and Putin haven't met. Right, I mean, it's why... sort of... 
the U.S. and Russian leaders have to meet every once in a while, or else things could get really, really bad. I mean, the, you know, these are the the owners of the two largest nuclear arsenals on the planet. If they're not talking to one another, then that's a very uncomfortable situation. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if the argument is that if they meet, they'll concoct some kind of scary scheme. Well, you know, isn't isn't the argument that Trump is being blackmailed from you know afar <laughs> anyway? So what difference does it make if he's <laughs> concocting the plan in person? Also, there's a translator there. So, I mean, if, if he really was getting up to some, you know, outrageous uh, treachery, would, would not a tra- translator leak this? I mean, you know, uh, it, all of it doesn't, there's not a lot of coherence to this kind of um, conspiracizing. I mean, you know, like, we should wait to see exactly what the results of this uh, Mueller investigation are and everything. But, I mean, jumping to these really wild conclusions um you know when when there's so much information that doesn't make sense um it, it, it's quite irresponsible and and i just want to say one more thing which is that um you know for people saying that uh the u.s and russia cannot now have peace or cannot negotiate for peace now because uh because of putin's meddling in the campaign i just want to point this out um when gorbachev and the u.s well gorbachev and reagan um had their summits which eventually led to the cold war the end of the cold war um i should say um uh a year before um they they had their first summit um the ussr shot down a korean a commercial korean plane that had flown too close to a soviet base i believe um, killing everyone on board, I think 266 people. One of them was a, um, a U.S. Uh, state senator. Um, also at the same time that Gorbachev and, and Reagan were meeting, uh, Aldrich Ames, a Soviet spy, had infiltrated the FBI and was giving Soviet officials uh, information about U.S. spies in the Soviet Union. And, and, the, and U.S. Um, uh, law enforcement noticed that um, a whole bunch of their assets were disappearing, turning up dead. Um, and there was an investigation going on into this, a secret investigation, you know, behind the scenes, um, pretty much the entire time that Gorbachev and, and Reagan were concluding the Cold War. Um, and in fact, I, I believe Aldrich Ames was only outed um, into the 90s. Um, so to me, those two things are far closer to a declaration of war than, you know, a bunch of Facebook ads and, uh, you know, um, leaking Clinton hacking and leaking Clinton's uh, uh, embarrassing emails, um, and I would not consider those things declarations of war either. They're sort of the standard kind of espionage that both countries were engaging in. But if those two things happened right before the Cold War was concluded, I do not see why this, you know, Russian meddling or Russian interference, whatever you want to call it, today um, has to be a roadblock um, or, or as a red line that that you know peace cannot simply cross. So my my last question, um, and you know, uh, feel free to be as short or as long as you want to want with this. Um, in your opinion, how should the the how should people on the left engage with stories like this? Uh, on NATO, there is a sort of reflexive need to defend anything that Trump. <laughs> like desire, I guess, to def- defend anything that Trump criticizes, mm-hmm. uh, and we know like his criticisms of NATO are uh, horrifying from a left perspective. They're they're about NATO not being militaristic enough. Um, when mm-hmm. you know the debate should be about how can we make this institution either less militaristic or do away with it altogether. Uh, and on Putin, I, I there's there's. I mean, I think the the evidence, as the evidence mounts that there really was some investment that they put into to affecting the 2016 election, which I still think was just about kind of creating chaos. It was about looking at the chaos that was already sort of embedded in the U.S. political system and kind of giving it a nudge. Uh, but, but how do we how do you acknowledge that? without feeding into the anti-Russia hysteria, which I would argue helps Putin on some level, because if his goal is to create kind of a a breakdown in the political system and create kind of havoc 
uh, and paralyze the United oh. States in that, you know, by doing that, then all these sort of running around uh, like a chicken with your head cut off uh, reactions to every little thing that Trump does when it relates to Russia, just feed that that sort of uh, that that sense, that sentiment of, uh, you know, they just make things like spiral things further out, further out of control. Mm, yeah, I mean, I think you, you're on the money there in the sense that um, I think Putin's uh, plan to, to interfere in the election has been wildly successful, more than he ever thought. I don't think he ever actually thought Trump would win because no one did. Um, but I think he, he wanted to, you know, um, embarrass Clinton. And then what's ended up happening is it's thrown the DC establishment into a complete frenzy. Um, you know, uh, whether that actually ends up good for him in the long run is, is a different question. But for now, it, you know, it seems to be to really sow the kind of chaos that, um, ironically, the kind of chaos that a lot of these people uh, who, who are perpetuating it warn about. Um, how should the left engage uh, in this? I mean, I think for one, it is tricky because there's a lot of uh, accusations at the moment about whataboutism, um, which is the you know the idea that if you if you say well what about the U.S. it's uh, oh well you're trying to distract from Russia's um, misdeeds by you know going back to always blaming the U.S. Um, but I think it's important to make a legitimate case for you know and, and make an, a really explicit case and really explain why it's important to bring the U.S. Um, and, and other allied uh, or other Western um, powers, I should say. I don't want to perpetuate Cold War thinking here. Um, but um, uh, why it's important to bring them up in the context of, of what Russia has been doing. And part of that is that, you know, I, I think it's actually pretty well acknowledged in, in, in sort of national security circles that um, what Russia did is really, it pales in comparison to what um the U.S. and 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 the U.K. and and uh, other uh, Western governments, especially those in the Five Eyes, do. Um, so and and uh, you know, it's it's also has to be seen as a reaction, right? I mean, one of the things that uh, that never gets brought up is there was an Atlantic story um, a while ago that you know quoted people who uh, had knowledge of some of the deliberations, the internal deliberations in Russia, that said that um, you know the. Putin's hacking was a response to the release of the Panama Papers, um, which is that big leak of the um, of the the, the uh, tax firm that showed all this tax evasion going on, and a lot of that had to, in, involved Russian um, oligarchs. Um, hugely embarrassing, and um, whether or not you believe it, uh, the Russian policymakers uh, seem to genuinely think that that was a U.S. operation, and and the fact is maybe it was. Uh, we just don't know. Um, and I think that's another important point is that we just we don't know enough about the situation to just jump to conclusions about uh, what exactly is motivating um, every you know uh, the, the Putin's behavior or other Russian officials' behavior. Um, there's so much about what the West gets up to that we we're just not sure. We we've known since the Snowden leaks that the U.S. has been developing um, a whole host of of um, uh, Technology to 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 basically do the kind of cyber disinformation that um, that Putin and and China and and others are now sort of famed for, um, but they just tend to be a lot more quieter. So I think making a making a case clearly for why um, why it's important to you know if you're outraged about Russia, good you should be, and I th I think and I genuinely mean that. I, you know I don't think any state should be getting up to disinformation um, and, and launching these kinds of, kinds of campaigns in other countries. But if you're outraged about that, you also have to put it in, a, in the broader context. Um, and I think the other thing is be very skeptical of what people in the national security establishment say, whether it's anonymous U.S. officials, whether it's uh, you know uh, ex-CIA officers or what have you. These people are not neutral actors. Um, and it's not necessarily to say that they are evil or malevolent. Um, but the fact is, throughout the Cold War, uh, intelligence agencies um, often did uh, feed anti-Russian par paranoia. Um, they often did overstate the, um, the Soviet threat um, because it's as much a problem as uh, of worldview as anything else. Um, a lot of these people have a fixed and very distinct worldview um, that tends to uh, err or, or lean on the side of conflict. Um, so I think that's an, I think making those cases is really important to convince people. I think, um, and you know, I've, I've been guilty of this, um, taking a more mocking tone to, 
the Russia investigation and saying things like, who cares or I don't care. I, I understand that, but I think it's not really helpful. I think if you want people to, um, to really change their minds on this, um, you have to acknowledge what scares them about this and what's uh, frightening about um, Russia's involvement and then say, okay, but are you aware that this kind of involvement, you know, tenfold is, is happening, um, you know, on the, on the sort of Western right. side? Um, so I don't know if that's a good good answer to your no, question. No, I think I think um, it is. I, I, I also I, is. I also think it would be great if somehow we could get people's fears and concerns about Russia uh, to translate into concerns about illiberalism and oligarchy and you know the sort of because Russia's really at the nexus of a lot of global inequality and a lot of the, the sort of movement toward ethno ethno states basically you know uh, the right wing nationalism mm. uh, if we could get people to care about that stuff more broadly than just you know who messed up who messed with the election and uh, uh, you know who's who's <laughs> got the P tape I think it would be great if we could expand people's kind of concerns from just Russia out to these bigger issues yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that uh, yeah, there was a there was a paper I think from Princeton that just came out yesterday or something that um, basically made an empirical case for the fact that the U.S. is an oligarchy. That you know all of its policy outcomes um, overwhelmingly reflect the wishes of the richest people in society and and basically ignore poor people unless they happen to coincide with the wishes no, of wealthier on. people. <laughs> Yeah, I know, crazy, crazy. Who, who could have thought with unlimited spending and uh, elections? <laughs> well, and I think actually, let me let me add a couple more things in here. Um, uh, I think it's also a good thing for people on the left to do is to try and um, read uh, outside just Western uh, media sources, uh, or at the very least, you know, outside just U.S. media sources, because um, that can sometimes be interesting. I mean, uh, independent Russian media, from everything I've read. Uh, reports on this stuff in a very different way. They don't report from this assumption that Trump is being controlled by Putin. They and these are, by the way, these are independent outlets. They're anti-Putin, so they report on. You know, they typically report on things in the in the in a way where um, Russia or Putin and Trump are actually kind of jockeying for power. Um, and 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 so I think it's instructive to read that kind of stuff. Uh, there's a a really good English website news source called um, Medusa, which is really um, useful. I think they, they don't report that much in the Trump-Russia stuff, but when they do, they have an interesting perspective um, that I think is worth reading. Um, for example, the other thing is as well, I think people on the left, uh, you know, people who are worried about cyber disinformation and, and cybersecurity and from, from Russia or whoever, I think one thing that's really worth doing is, is you might start calling or pushing for a, uh, a, a kind of a cyber treaty, uh, which actually... Russia and a bunch of other countries had actually pushed for in 2009, but the U.S. and, and Europe had rejected, um, presumably because they were far further ahead at the time in terms of developing their um, their cyber capabilities than Russia had, um, which, of course, you know, now we see uh, if you, <laughs> right. you know, uh, how that has come back to bite um, these countries, um, you know, uh, politically. So, um, you know, you might talk about that because... The safest way, as with nuclear weapons, the safest way to prevent someone from attacking you um, is to create a uh, is to make sure that no one can, right? It's to basically uh, create a treaty where where no one can do the thing that you're afraid of doing. And yes, that means that you can't do it either, um, which I would argue is a good thing, um, given uh, the U.S. and, and European countries uh, meddling in other countries. Um, but I think that's sort of one tangible thing that, that you know, you could do uh, uh, or that you could sort of, uh, I guess, call for or, or, or inject into the conversation, which is not really getting talked about. Um, so, yeah. Um, yeah. Those, those two things, I think, are important. Great. Well, Branko, thank you so much uh, for coming on. And uh, I will I'll link to uh, all three of the articles that we talked about in the show description. Uh, is there anything else you're doing you got coming up that you want to plug uh, you, you, this is your, um, your time. yeah right well uh i have gotten the works i'm not sure when it's going to come out because it um depends on uh how quickly i get it done but um i am going to write a thing for jacobin about uh basically uh how uh 
suspicion of Russia and this kind of uh, uh, McCarthyist and, and hawkish rhetoric through history, through the, the Cold War, I should say, has um, fed into uh, more aggressive actions and, and, and actually mistaken actions um, throughout, you know, and, and actually fed militarization um, with lots of examples um, that, that I think should be uh, interesting to read for anyone who's either interested in history or interested in how the current moment is a uh, reliving of that history. So uh, look awesome. for that. Uh, yeah, keep, everybody keep your eyes out for that. Uh, <laughs> Branko Marchetish, thank you so much, uh, and uh, take care. Yeah, no, it was a pleasure. Thanks. Okay, so, um, yeah, a lot of, you know, uh, interesting arguments, takes on the, the, the NATO summit and the meeting between Trump and Putin that I think uh, it's important to consider. It's a different point of view from the one that you're getting from most of the reporting and commentary on these events. And so uh, I want to thank Bronco Marchetich again for coming on and uh, providing us with those. Uh, I want to thank you guys, as always, for listening. Uh, I'll be back later this week uh, to continue probably, uh, who's, who's to say really, uh, but to probably continue our uh, discussion of the Bathists. And uh, until then, as always, uh, again, thanks for listening. And I'll talk to you soon. Take care. Bye-bye.